Barnabas were going out into the Gentile world, and not only were Jews accepting the message, but Gentiles that were saved from the pagan lifestyle. They were coming to faith. What do you do with those guys? They don't acknowledge Jehovah God. Do we require them to, to be a Jew first, to, to understand who Jehovah God is first, and then we can add Jesus to the mix? What are we supposed to do? How does this go over for these pagan Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus? So if you go to Acts chapter 15, I, I want to do a whirlwind look at this because I don't have much time today. But in chapter 15, Luke begins the narrative like this. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Okay? The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers there in Phoenicia and Samaria very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. There's the debate. Who's right? Who's got the upper hand in this debate? It's kind of like when I would go out to Oklahoma and visit my grandparents and you'd ask grandma for something, and she was like the law. She'd say, no, you, you can't have that. So what do you do? you go see grandpa, right? Because he represented grace. And, and as long as grandpa said yes, it was okay. But then there was tension between grandpa and grandma. The message was, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Wait a second, is, is that the message that Paul and Barnabas were bringing to the Gentiles? No, it was not. And what's more, Luke actually tells us that these guys did not have the authority to be running their mouth off. Not like we would ever do that as Christians and let our mouth run off about opinions that we have and, and elevate our opinions to the level of gospel. <laughs> See, people were being saved. And in Phoenicia and Samaria, there was great rejoicing that they were being saved, but in Jerusalem, not so much. Now there is criticism because it's kind of like when you have a youth group function and many youth come to know who Jesus is, but now there's a hole in the wall because of a ball that hit the wall and more people are upset that there's a hole in the wall than they are excited about children coming to know who Jesus is. Thank you. Amen. Okay, so they're coming to Jesus, but are they really doing it the right way? They haven't done it like we did it. What about our traditions? What about the way that we had to do things? Paul had a perspective on this time frame that he wrote to the Galatian church about. In Galatians chapter 2, he says, Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because of false brothers, this is what Paul calls these guys, false brothers who were secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom so that they might bring us into slavery. False brothers. That's what Paul calls these guys that are insistent upon circumcision as a requirement to come to faith in Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Are there false brothers out there today in, in the world of Christianity? Absolutely. People who are not comfortable with the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And they, they consequently try to stuff the extra baggage into the upper compartments of the, of, of the plane. I, I, love, I love this. Oh, it'll fit. It'll fit. You, you just watch. I'll make this fit. I'll make my tradition, my opinion fit into your faith. I get it. I've been there. That's easy to do. To, to, to add things to Jesus. But we have to fight against that natural tendency because what the Bible clearly teaches is that Jesus is sufficient. His death and resurrection was what satisfied the penalty of our sin. And though we are called to stay in step with the Holy Spirit, though we are called to actually allow Him to change our life, and we we are called to respond to that gospel of grace with our trust, the truth is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's like the guy who got to heaven, and he found out that in order to get into heaven, there was a point system, and you had to make a thousand points. And he says, well, I've been to church, you know, half my life. They said, well, that's uh, that's 50 points. So he adds 50, and uh, I, I owned a Bible, um, okay, well, that's another five. Okay, now we're at 55. I, I gave money to mission for Mexico. Well, that's another 20 points. And, and he begins to add this up. But after being there a considerable time, he begins to get very anxious because he realizes he is so far from 1,000 points, it's not even funny. To which point he says, oh, Lord, have mercy. And Peter goes, oh, that's 1,000 points. Come on in. Lord, have mercy is what gets us there. It's a temptation for us to add to Jesus, not just moral standards. At one point, it was how you dressed. Now people can come to church in shorts and black socks and sandals, and it's okay. Right, my friend? It's been, which version of the Bible should we study? It's been public school versus Christian school versus homeschool. It's been Sunday worship or Saturday worship. It's been communion once a week or once a quarter, and so on and so forth. Things that are added to our faith in Jesus. Political parties added to faith. Economic platforms, ways to interpret end times, the role of women in ministry. Now, are those issues important to consider? Of course they are, but they are not a requirement for our faith. They are, they are more a part of our spiritual growth as we read and learn and grow deeper into understanding God's heart. But if we make those a requirement, well, then we've basically said we've changed the motivation altogether. Now the motivation is, can I be good enough for God? Let me ask you, can you be good enough if you have sin in your life? To stand before a holy God? Absolutely not. You cannot do that. When we try to do that, we deny the power of the forgiveness that came from Jesus' blood. 
And it's like we say, well, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, but that wasn't enough. I now have to do all of these other things. What Paul tells us is that our motivation for holiness comes from a response to his grace, not a requirement for his grace. Does that make sense? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved. Yes, through faith, but it's grace that we have been saved by. And this not from ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. For we are whose workmanship? We got, see, salvation is a God work, not an us work. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Yes, there it is. We're supposed to be doing good works, but not as a requirement, more as a response. God prepared those in advance for us to do. Now, if you're struggling with this concept, a good way of checking is by seeing what motivates you to live according to what God wants you to do. Is it so that you can appease an angry God? If so, then you've missed the mark. Is it to look good in front of your peers? If so, you've missed the mark. Is it so that you can earn your way to heaven? If so, you've missed the mark. It's a response, folks. It's a response to the grace. I, I started out talking about the B-I-B-L-E. There was another song that I learned when I was a kid. And, and it really uh, takes the concepts of First John and makes them so wonderful. Maybe you've heard it. It goes, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Does anybody know the next line? Because he first loved me. See, it's a response. He loved me. And then I can show him my love back as a response. Yes, I'm redeemed. I'm saved. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. There's a relationship that I have with God. And because of that, it changes me. It changes the way that I live. And it gives me a different motivation for loving God and loving people. And that's what God had designed all along. And that's why it's so important to see what the Jerusalem church, the central church, would say about these conversions. Are they going to accept them or not? Paul was so passionate about this that he said in Galatians 1, if anybody preaches a gospel not based on grace, they can go to hell. That's basically what he says in 118. So how does the Jerusalem deal with it? Let's look at what Peter first says there in verses 6 and following. The apostles, the elders met to consider. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Whose choice? Peter's? That was God's choice, folks. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. It was God who was demonstrating this validating it by giving them the Holy Spirit. God made no distinction between us and them, for God purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Peter said, guys, if it's all based on the law, we've blown it. And our ancestors blew it. It has nothing to do with the law. No, we believe It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Wow. 
Very simple. It's all God. And I love how he actually puts the Jews in the exact same place as the Gentiles. He says, guess what? It's not just the Gentiles that came to, to, to God through faith and we had to come to it through law. No, he says, no, no. We actually also come to it by faith as well. So then Paul and Barnabas were told they continued to show the evidence of, of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the gospel. And then a guy named James begins to speak. And who is James? Well, obviously he's not the brother of John who died a few chapters back. That would be a little weird. That James the apostle had died at the hands of Herod. Now this is a different James. Well, we, we know that this is actually the James, the brother of Jesus. The, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. And, and we know from the, the gospel account that he was not a believer at one point. Uh, it said that Jesus' brothers did not believe in who he was. But now, apparently, he has some standing in the church. Some people believe that he is actually the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And now he's a major believer in Jesus. Can, can you imagine when you finally realize that your older brother really was God's gift to mankind? You know? That your older brother really could walk on water. It's like, wow, wow, maybe I was wrong. Well, what does James say? Verse 14, James then says, listen, Simon described, talking about Peter, Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this. He says the Old Testament really does show this. It's written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent, talking about Jerusalem, uh, Israel. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And check this out. This is in the Old Testament. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages Therefore, James says, it is my judgment, because he was the pastor of the church, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. A couple things there because it seems like they say, hey, you're all good. You don't have to follow any rules except for these four. So how, how, do, we, uh, how do we justify that? How do we marry those two ideas? Well, if, if I gave you these four concepts, um, preview, popcorn, ticket stub, and seats, what am I talking about? Oh, I, I'd have to say movies, did I? You knew what I was talking about just by those four things. What if I say this, buggies? No electricity, uh, beards, and um, barn raising. Amish. I didn't have to say Amish, did I? In our culture, we know those things by those four identifiers, right? Well, it seems weird that though they say you don't have to follow any laws except for these four, what, what, what is James trying to say? Well, what is foreign to us 2,000 years later in a different culture would have been plain as day plain as Amish, plain as movies to these guys. Because all four of those things would have been things that would be criteria, key issues for pagan worship. Okay? 
if you were going to be a pagan and go into a pagan temple, all four of those things would have been involved in pagan worship. And people would notice. James didn't have to say, don't be a pagan. He would just say, just don't act like a pagan by giving them these four things. So, in other words, James is saying, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian, but you cannot be a pagan. You can't be a pagan. You... Why? Because a pagan would worship some other God besides Jehovah God. So you don't have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian, but you cannot be a pagan. Now, James is big on this because when he wrote his letter, the book of James in our New Testament, he actually says, he says, listen, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, paganism, is hatred towards God? You can't have it both ways. Anyone who chooses to be a pagan, a friend of the world, becomes an enemy of God. And just so you don't think that James is just kind of an outlier and kind of a wacky guy, Paul actually echoes the same thing to the Corinthian believers who also were being saved out of a pagan lifestyle. He says in 2 Corinthians, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't have those close ties with paganism. For what do, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What agreement is there between the temple of God, talking about the church, and idols? Now this is a great reminder for us that Jesus plus nothing actually goes both ways. See, you can't add acts of righteousness to Jesus in order for you to be made right with God. But also, you should not be incorporating your past sinful lifestyle into your newfound faith either. How do I know this? Well, if you look at verse 21, this is one of those things that I I actually had to go into Andy's office and we had to talk a little bit about this because this one is a little surprising. We've just said, don't worry about the law. But he says, but listen, Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Why don't they tell the, uh, the, the Gentile believers to not steal or to not lie? Well, because they understand that there is a moral code still. God still cares about how we live. Some of you have now breathed a sigh of relief because you know, I'm glad to, to, to hear you say, Pastor, that it does matter how I live. Of course it matters how you live as a response to the grace given to you. It is to trust and then obey. To trust, to trust, and then obey. He says, listen, the Old Testament is a wonderful thing to continue to learn because it is the foundation of our faith. You look through the Old Testament and you see Jesus throughout the Old Testament. It gives testimony to who Jesus is. And so we don't throw out the old. We just don't use it as a requirement to get to our faith. And so really that tension between grace and law It really isn't grace versus the law. It's actually grace and the law in that order. Grace and the law. Because God said he would write his law on our hearts so that we would not have to have it external anymore. That we could actually have it internal. That we could trust him for our salvation. And then as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we can then begin to obey a response of loving submission in light of an undeserved mercy. The true gospel message encompasses both law and grace. 
uh, grace must come first. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And yet a life that does not reflect a change, the power of the Holy Spirit, that also equals nothing as well. When we begin to understand the balance of the two and know that Jesus has come and his death and sacrifice is enough and sufficient for our righteousness. And then we begin to live in that righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we experience this amazing joy that we read of at the last part of this chapter in verse 31. Where the people read the conclusion and they were glad. They didn't feel put upon. They didn't feel burdened. They didn't feel yoked. They didn't feel like they got to. They felt glad that they get to. They were glad for its encouraging message. Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up. The best way that I can explain this is through a story that I had heard one time about a little boy who was visiting Washington, D.C., and he came to the Washington Monument, pretty impressed by the, uh, the obelisk there, and so he talked to the guard. He said, I, I, I like that. He goes, I want to buy that. And so he reached into his pocket and pulled out a quarter. <laughs> the, the, the guard kind of laughed and said, um, kiddo, that's, that's not enough to buy the Washington Monument. So the, the little boy reached back into his other pants, his other pocket, and brought it out nine more cents, 34 cents. 34, I'd like to buy the Washington Monument. This is what the guard told him. Son, three things you need to know. Number one, 34 cents is not enough. $34 million would not be enough to buy the Washington Monument. Number two, the Washington Monument isn't even for sale. And number three, son, if you are an American citizen, the Washington Monument already belongs to you. Now let's look at our faith. Salvation through Jesus Christ, his grace alone. First, we cannot earn it. We cannot earn forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins was paid for by Jesus alone. If you have been trying to do it on your own, good news for you today is you can come and give your life to Jesus and surrender and say, I want you to take care of my sin, and he will. Today could be the day of salvation for you. You don't earn it. You can't buy it. Number, number two, it's not even for sale. There's nothing that we can do to add to the gospel that would make God obligated to love us or to give us favor because he's already done it. And by the way, if, if you become a citizen of God's kingdom, you've trusted fully in the cross and the empty grave, then guess what? You already own that. It's already yours, and it will change your life.